This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Well, it's been a very blustery May, hasn't it? I mean, talk about April showers. We've had them in May. Anyway, let's hope the sun will come out tomorrow. Oh, there's song. <laughs> anyway, my guest this week is so multi-talented. She's a singer. She's an actress. She's a songwriter. She's a brilliant producer of amazing films. And she's just released the second of a trilogy of EPs called Trilogy. The first one came out a few months ago. The second one has just dropped and the third one will be out later in the year and they're fabulous. I got a preview. So please go to your music sources and find them. She is the very talented Rita Wilson. Well, this is a treat. I'm talking to California and I'm talking to the delicious Rita Wilson. Hello. Hello, Twiggy. It's so nice to be here and having tea with you. Good. Oh, talking of tea, what do you, uh, yes. do you drink tea? I do. Um, right now I drink herbal teas because mm -hmm. I don't have any caffeine. Okay. I haven't had caffeine in like uh, 20 eight years. Wow. I'm very so impressed. I drink an herbal tea and the one that I like is called Good Earth Sweet and Spicy. Oh, so I wonder what's in that. I don't know, but it doesn't, you don't add sugar and oh, okay. it's sweet. Oh, because yes. I'm actually drinking um, lemon and ginger because it's, it, that's slightly spicy actually. Yeah, that's good. Good for the throat too. No, I love my tea. I've talked to California and New York quite a lot to friends and mates and um, we, we always laugh about how you can't get a good cup of tea in America. <laughs> it's true. We just Unless don't it's have made it. by an English person. <laughs> That's right. And I don't know what the deal is, but that is accurate. <laughs> when, I, when I was a few years ago, I was a judge on America's Next Top Model. And I used to moan so much because the tea they bought was so awful. So I used to bring my own tea bags and they bought me my own kettle. Because that's the secret. It has to be boiling water. <laughs> Absolutely. It's so true. You know, those things, those faucets that have the hot water and you can just yep. pour your, you know, hot water out of the, the hot faucet. I don't think those quite work. They don't. Not the same as boiling. Trust me, letting they, it they don't. <laughs> yeah. But I have to say you do make great coffee. <laughs> Thank you. Which we can't really. Although okay. it's getting better in America, in England, actually. Good, good, good. Listen, I really want to talk to you today because I've been, I, I mean, I knew a lot of your songs, but I've, the last kind of few months, because of our mutual friend, Amy Wodge, I've been catching up on all your albums. You have got the most beautiful voice. It's it's like velvet, number one, and I, I was, I'm just, I've, I've been kind of obsessing on your albums and wow. some of the songs because you've written a lot of the songs yourself, right? Yes. First of all, thank you for that uh, beautiful compliment. I'm very, very honored by that. Thank you. Um, yes, I, 
do write, I co-write everything. Um, my first album was all cover songs. And that was sort of, I guess, dipping my toes into the music water. And that album was called AMFM. And, and I know you like to do covers as well. I well, I, I sadly don't write. But, um, but one of my favorites on that album is Leaving on a Jet Plane. Right. Yes. That, that's a great cover. It's, oh, thank you it's almost, so much. Go far, say it's better than the original, but oh it's a God. great cover. It well, really I is. I worked with a great producer um, called Fred Mullen, and he is just, he really knows his stuff. And I think that's that's 99% of it. You know, you can, it's how somebody puts things together and the band they put together and how that band is going to work with your voice and that material. So I've learned a lot from all of the people that I've worked with on how to make things right for me. You know, it's, uh, I was talking to a songwriter friend of mine the other day, Nathan Chapman. Mm -hmm. He's responsible for producing, I think the first four Taylor Swift albums. He was her engineer. Not not too bad then. (laughs) No, he's a great guy. He started out as her engineer, just putting together, you know, demos for her. And she really liked what he was doing. But we were speaking one day and I said, how do you know what you're, if you're an artist, what your sound is? How do you find your sound? And he said, well, he told me this story about working in EDM for a while, EDM music. And he said, I love EDM. I love it. I love it. I just listen to everything. I think it's fantastic. But he said, it's not really my wheelhouse. And he said, there's a difference between loving something and being good at it. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, as as songwriters, as performers, you can say, gosh, I love, you know, rap, but I don't think I'm very good at it. You know, <laughs> So it's trying to really accept what you're really good at and what your wheelhouse is so that you develop that into a way that that's true you know that's really interesting actually because my two great passion I mean I love most music I'm not great on modern jazz because I don't really understand it but right most modern music I I I love um unless it's very very heavy metal then that's too loud (laughs) right but my passions are country music and or country pop probably more than the old-fashioned country, and, you know, like Gershwin, Cole Porter, that period. Yes. That, so they're, they're the two passions of my life, and that's what I love to sing when I'm given yeah. a chance. And I think what, what I hear when you say that is that you are attracted to the stories in those songs, which is what I love about country music as well and country pop. It's when I look When I think back on the country music that I grew up on, in um, the 60s and the 70s, it was really like the storytelling that attracted Mm -hmm. me. It was Dolly Parton, it was Johnny Cash, it was Bobby Gentry. And those songs had amazing stories like Ode to Billy Joe, like that alone, that what was going down in that kitchen at that house and what was happening up on that bridge and why (laughs) did nobody talk about it and why are they saying pass the peas when somebody has just said that somebody jumped off a bridge (laughs) like it was so insane to listen to that but that was really compelling to me even things like 
Harper Valley PTA. Oh, Do you remember I that love, song? GC Riley. Love it. Like that song was it. amazing because it was about a woman who said, I'm going to call out all the hypocrites. Yeah, in here. exactly. And, and, it's, and it really holds up. It was play, actually, I heard it played on the radio about two weeks ago and it really holds up. It's yeah, a great it song. Does. But it's funny for me because. I grew up in, I'm a bit older than you, I grew up in the 1950s. I was, my teenage years were 60s. Um, and country music didn't didn't really break here, not properly. You know, there were a few aficionados who would play it occasionally. So when I first came to America in 1966, oh no, 67, and I came out to California and, you know, and obviously, you know, the country music was huge with people like Dolly Parton and yeah. all Bobby Gentry. And I was just like gobsmacked because I hadn't really heard that music. You know, I was kind of into the Beatles right. and the Stones. Yeah, because you covered Ruby Tuesday, which I loved. I thought that was so good. What a great song. Oh, thank you. But, you know, now country music is so so much more popular in the UK than it ever was. There's that C2C show that they do. And I I think that country music and Irish music um, are not so far apart. And uh, if you watch Ken Burns' documentary on country music, he makes a connection between Ireland and country music that we know of in the past, which is fantastic, you know. Well, I think the well, as he explained, I mean, he he's to me, he's one of my heroes. Actually, I, his documentaries are unbelievable. But I think he explains that because when they the immigrants came from Ireland and Scotland, and and that's where the roots kind of you know started. Right, the, and those yeah. exactly because I lo- again I love Irish music as well. Right. Oh gosh, I mean just. <laughs> <laughs> it's the emotion that's in there, yeah. right? To me, that's what connects me to something is how do I respond to something emotionally? Like, what does my gut tell me about something? And that's really how uh, I like to approach even the stuff that I write is it's I'm always asking myself, what's the story here? And I'll be driving down the street and something will come to me and I'll just like fumble. Hey, Siri, can you open voice memos, you know, and hopefully, oh, now Siri's turning on. See what I mean? No, <laughs> go away, Siri. Um, but just to try to put an idea down or a story or, or, or something, because it's, um, it's really about that. I, I just want to get into, I look at songs as little three act movies or plays, you know, what's happening and, and what's the, the chorus going to say? And if there's a bridge, what are you saying that you haven't said before in the bridge? One songwriter I wrote with, I loved this. I said to her, we were working on a song and um, we got to the bridge. And I said, well, I said, I've been taught that a bridge is sort of like saying something you haven't said before or changing something up musically. And she said, oh, I like to think of the bridge as the drop the mic moment. And I was like, yes, I love that. Because it's sort of like you're listening to the song, you've heard verse one and two, you've heard the chorus. Now you get to the bridge. What are you saying? And it's like, this is what I'm going to say. Drop it. And um, (laughs) the song we were working on was called New Girl. And this songwriter is called Emily Shackleton. And it was based on a true story about a girlfriend of mine 
who was at one of her son's soccer matches. And she gets a text from her husband. And in the text, he says, baby, I love you so much. I want you to know everything is going to be okay. And FYI, my wife is going away for the weekend. Yes. He (laughs) sent his wife the text meant for his mistress. So my girlfriend they tried to make the marriage work and she just couldn't. And she walked away, but she did it with such grace. And I was telling, I couldn't get the idea out of my head that what would happen if you ran into that woman somewhere? And what would you say if you were my girlfriend who was very classy about the whole thing? And so she basically tells this woman, like, you're not the first, you're not the last, he's going to do it again. So when we got to the bridge and she said that drop the mic moment, I was like, I know exactly what to say. And the bridge was, (laughs) he called me last night, but you didn't know that. But don't worry about me. I'm not going back. So it was just like, boom, proof that this guy was going to cheat on this new girl, right? So that's what I learned from that. You learn from every songwriter you've written with. And when you write with somebody else, is is it, do, do do one of you kind of do the music and the other one does the lyrics or is it a kind of it's a, different a each time it's, partnership. It's, it's different each time sometimes I'll come in with a melody or I'll come in with full lyrics or I'll come in with a song okay. title or something recently uh, I was in the UK and I was writing with a, a bunch of UK writers and Swedish writers and two of the writers that I uh wrote with they were like just send lyrics and I'll put music to them which was really interesting Mm. because I had never written like that before and I've really enjoyed that process as well because it kind of liberates me from um, having to have songwriters all the time because if I could I'd be writing all the time so this is a way to sort of work on lyrics without having to wait for a session to come along. But I read in your bio that you didn't start writing till was it 2012 or 2016? 2013. So that's amazing. That's amazing. So it was all inside you, but you'd never put it down. And I have to thank um, this songwriter, Cara Diaguardi. She's an amazingly talented songwriter. She's written Sober for Pink, Walk Away for Kelly Clarkson. it just goes on and on. Huge, huge hits. And I'm blanking, but you'll you'll look her up on Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she had done the, I had done the musical Chicago playing Roxy Hart. She had also done it. And um, our, our dance captain put us together and said, you guys should know each other. I think you'd really get along. And when we met, she said, so what do you want to do? And I said, oh my gosh, I would give anything to write music like like you but she goes well why don't you and I said because I I don't play an instrument I don't read music I'm not I can't and she said yeah but do you have something you want to say and it's like you just said when you have something you want to say like it was all in me but I didn't know it and I said yeah she goes I'll write your first songs with you and she did she kept her word And that got me on the process of writing. And I had a manager then who was based in Nashville. And he said, come down and just I'll set up writing sessions for you. And he, I just started going down to Nashville on a regular basis and writing music. Is that how you met Amy Wodge? Because she told me she 
No, I Amy goes to Nashville too. Obviously, yeah. she has well, she has there over the last year. No. I know she's climbing climbing the walls to get back there. But exactly. So, where did you meet Amy? So, Amy and I met through one of her mutual friends, who was um, a producer doing a documentary on Nashville. And so, she interviewed me for this documentary, and had interviewed, I guess, Amy. And she said, you and Amy would really get along. You, I'm going to put you two together. So she did. And uh, when Amy came out to Los Angeles, we met and we started writing. And then that gave birth to our project that we just finished recording in the UK. So, um, and oh, so many- she didn't, she said that you were doing something, but she said yes. it was a secret. So <laughs> it's kind of a secret, but I will tell you that Amy and I have completed a project that we recorded when I was in the UK in March. Oh, oh! So you came over here then? Was was she in Wales? She was in Wales, and we met yeah. up at um, the recording studio, which was a residential recording studio, and everybody was following all the COVID protocols yeah. and all of that. So, um, yeah, we were able to finish it. it was fantastic. I was so. Oh, it was so, so when, much when fun. When will we? Know, when will we know about it? Probably in the fall. Oh, okay. Yes, Ooh, yes. Little preview. Yes. <laughs> we'll come back and talk to you about it. Because I actually haven't met Amy yet. We, we, we're going to hopefully meet this summer when we're allowed to. Oh, yeah. But we You're... got on so well on online. And she's amazing. We, we felt that we were like old spirits that had met before. <laughs> yes. She's really a, a wildly creative person. Oh, I, I'm such a I'm such a fan. Yeah. Have you, did you see the series she wrote the music for called Keeping Faith? I don't think Faith? I can get it, right? <gasps> I don't know. I don't think I Tell can get it, it in send, the US. She must be able to I'm going to ask it her over. because I would love to see it. I know it's oh my wildly God, successful. I, be, I became completely obsessed. Oh, and it my was God. and I I said to her, I mean I loved the drama and there's a wonderful actress um in it called Eve Miles in the lead. And it was done. I love it because it was a. It was done on a tiny budget in Wales. The big networks didn't want to know. It went out in Welsh first. Apparently, oh, they did. Wow. They did two versions, Welsh and English. Wow! And it it created such a, a following in Wales, and then they put it out online in English, and it just exploded. And then the BBC, in their wisdom, put it out. Oh, well, if it's on the BBC, maybe I can get it on the BBC app. Uh, Yeah, you might be. I don't know. I'm not very good at all that. Right. uh, If not, it's so wonderful. And her music is just... I know. It's incredible. Well, I've heard the music. That's online. I can get that. And I love it. But I think you'd enjoy the drama. It's really beautifully directed. Oh, Because just jumping over quickly, because we're talking about drama... You're you're not a bad producer. <laughs> Thank you. Oh my goodness! My well, big fat Greek wedding is one of my favorite films ever. How did how did that all happen? That was it's so interesting that you were talking about this with keeping faith and that nobody wanted it initially and then it became yeah. a huge success. We had the very same experience with my big fat Greek wedding, the original one. I had gone to see this play. And the reason I went to see this play, it was a one-woman show called My Big Fat Greek Wedding, was because of the title. And <laughs> I would go, I still go to New York frequently, and I see a lot of theater. And I try to see small theater, too, not just Broadway and the big shows. Yeah. 
because I think that's where you're finding out like new talent and, and what's really going on. And I thought to myself, why do I do that in New York, but I don't do that in LA. So I'm going to start seeing more plays in LA. So I got home from that New York trip and Back then, the LA Times would give the theater listings on Thursday, just one day a week. And they had one ad that was maybe the size of a postage stamp because Nia could only afford that size of an ad. And it just said Nia Vardalis in her play, My uh, Big Fat Greek Wedding. So I was like, I'll go see that just based on the title. I go to see it, take my sister and my mom, my nieces. We laughed so much. (laughs) <laughs> and the next, I came back and I said to Tom, you've got to go and see this play because this is incredible. We had just started a new company and we were looking for material. Brilliant. So when I met Nia after the play, I said, I'd like to meet the writer. And she came out and I said, this would make an incredible movie. She goes, I have a script. And she oh. gave me the script and read it. It was fantastic. It was pretty much what you see on on the movie. And we just kept trying to get the movie made and no one would make it because they wanted to replace her with a movie star. They didn't think there were enough names in the movie. They just... How many wonderful films have not been made because of those reasons? Yeah, a lot. And I I mean, I know it's all about money and things in the end, but sometimes they they lose out on so much talent. And they really do. And I think part of it is that people don't know it until they see it, but having a vision to see it, you know, and we had been through it. I had sat in those theaters. I had heard the people laughing riotously. I'd, I'd sat in the table reads when we did it, you know, just to hear it with other actors. How does the script sound when the script is read? And it mm-hmm. all worked. So anyways, we finally found partners and we made the movie. But after we made the movie, and it was the movie that you see, no one would distribute it. We could oh not get a distributor. We went to... <gasps> Everyone, everyone said no. And then we found one guy who said, okay. And we just started like grassroots. We did a very, very inexpensive, but very concentrated marketing effort by going to all sorts of towns in the United States, not just the big cities. And it was hugely successful. Isn't it the the most successful independent film ever or something? It's the, it's the most successful a romantic comedy ever. Um, It might be the most successful independent movie ever too, but I'm not sure. I did did read that. that. I I did read that when I was looking it up. Very proud of that. You know why though, Twiggy? It gave people so much joy. People just were happy. They were, it made them laugh. It made, it brought families together. It made you look at your own family in a different way. And I, I think that, you know, that if I could say I had a mission statement for the product or things that I want to put out there, it would be to bring people some kind of joy. Yeah. Um, it also hit, hit a core, you know, it, I know that the big studios like, you know, the big films that are like, you know, what do you call them when they go out, you know, they're like adventure things. Oh, yeah, and, right. 
And But this, I loved it because it was about family. It was a, a proper story about human reaction and funny and touching. Yeah, and exactly. And that, they're the films I love. And they're always the ones that are very hard to get up and running, aren't they? Yeah, it really is. And, and yet people love them, you see. When, once you put it out there, yeah. the public loved them. It's a matter of finding the audience. And in this case, the audience was found because they we literally Nia and John Corbett went all over the country promoting it all over the country it started very small and very few theaters and okay. the people that went to see it in the theaters built word of mouth so I, I you cannot underestimate the power of fans and the power of people who tell you what they want mm. and um what i wonder is Will we be able to find those things going forward, those smaller, wonderful projects that, um, you know, because there are so many huge studio films that are big blockbuster, you know, comic book movies and and yeah, there's a place for all. I mean, not that I dislike them, but it'd be nice to have, you know, the other other side when the little ones come out. Right. There was one done that came out this last year in England called The Dig, I think it was called. Loved The Dig. One of my wasn't favorite movies of the year. But wasn't uh, Ray Fiennes amazing? Amazing. And, amazing. And Carrie Mulligan was, I loved it because it was such, it was about a little story and their interaction and it was, you know, there were no guns, no car chases. No. And it was about <laughs> it was that woman's about, vision. And it yeah. was about, for me, that, that, that she trusted that that character would be able to do it. it at the end of the movie. Oh, spoiler alert! I just couldn't. <laughs> yeah, shut your ears if you haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah, I just couldn't believe that she had given that speech where she said, "I just want all the credit to go to this gentleman." And at the end, it, he never got the credit. I know. Oh, it was just so sad. I just... Well, the big the big guys took over, didn't yes, they? The, and he the... was so he was so wonderful. I thought he was brilliant. brilliant. I just loved. I just that to me was like a perfect. Film. It was really one of my favorite, if not, oh. yeah, maybe my favorite movie of this past year. It was oh, we're going to get on a treat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the same so thing you... goes for like even. <clears throat> I, you know, you have to trust your instinct on things. And I'm sure you've mm -hmm. been in this position for yourself. But when um, Mama Mia came out, we were in England. Mm -hmm. And I'd heard about this musical with ABBA music. And I was like, oh, that could be fun. It had been out like two, two weeks, I think. And uh, I got the family together and we all went to see it. And about 20 minutes in, I was like, oh. This would make the most amazing movie. This would make the most amazing movie. And it took place in Greece. And, you know, I have Greek yeah. heritage. So, and we had oh, just course, come yeah. out with my big fat Greek wedding. And I was like, maybe there's more <laughs> Greece in our future. And uh, so it took about five years to bring that to um, to the screen from the time that well, I, I saw it. Tell you a sweet story about that. Because Judy Kramer, who... Did the original? Of course. Um, um, she did the production. Play. She's yeah. She did the production, and she was she's. I've known Judy for years and years and years, and we almost did a couple of things together when she was 
you know, working producer before before the Mamma Mia days. Right. On telly, we, we had, but not, nothing came of anything, but we stayed friends because we got on very well. And I can remember, it must be, well, God, it's over. How long is it since? Uh, 2008 was, was the first one, and then the okay, sequel so, was uh, 2000. So the stage 12. play must have been what five, ten years before that. Yep, it was about 2002, 2003. So before the stage play, Judy came over to dinner at our flat, and I, I cooked a meal because I do like to cook. I love that. <laughs> and we're sitting, and she said, "I've got this mad idea," and we said, "Oh yeah, what is it?" And she said. I want to make a stage play, a, a musical, using ABBA music. And we, we went, oh, yeah. And she said, I've, try, I've tried to talk to them and they're not interested. But she said, because she'd worked with the, the guys on chess. On chess, she'd exactly. Produced that. Right. Yeah. So she'd flown to Sweden, she said, and they weren't interested. They didn't want to know. She said, but I'm not going to give up. And I think, I, I think if my memory serves me well, she kept going back to them. And, and in the end, they gave, they gave in. I mean, yeah. it's unbelievable. And about when the stage play came out and it was this massive hit, yeah, she won the best, oh, I don't know, new musical award. And they asked me if I'd give it to her. So I told that story because I felt I was slightly part of it because she told Absolutely. us this dream in our, in our sitting room, eating my dinner. <laughs> oh, that's so good. What did you make um, that night? Lucky dish. Oh, oh God, oh, God. I think you should, like, knows. always yeah, serve lucky that. lucky dish. <laughs> congratulations on, I mean, they are the best music. When, when the movies, I, I went to see Mamma Mia 2 with my daughter, who's grown up. She's, you know, in her 40s. Right. But we're really, really close. I love that. And we went to, because um, her, her little girl was at, at nursery, I think, so we had to go to a morning screening right. so she could pick her up. And we went. So there were only about four of us in the cinema. And we got to the bit with the mum and the daughter. And we we just, both of us, just burst into tears. Oh, my and God. We held How each emotional other's hands. was that? Oh, oh my. Literally, when, when I was, you know, as one of the producers, I'm watching the dailies all the time, which is... For people, yeah. people, your audience is probably sophisticated, but it's what they filmed that day. You see <laughs> the next day. And I just watching the dailies, not even cut together. It was so emotional. I was, mm. oh, oh my God. Like it was just, everybody feels that. The Greek politicians should give you guys <laughs> to Greece well because you must have upped that they gave us honorary citizenship so now we have Greek quite passports. bloody right <laughs> <laughs> which I oh, can I come with you when you go back <laughs> <laughs> yes I was so honored honestly because you know I I love I love Greece so much it's just it's my dad was born in Greece my mother was born in America raised in Greece and so it really is my other homeland. And I love the people. I love the culture. It's, yeah. oh, it's an incredibly amazing. warm place. So I like to honor it because it's a place that brings me happiness. Didn't they honor you with a stamp? Yes, I'm awesome. Yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> I, I, I like to say brilliant. that you can lick the back of my head and put it on an envelope <laughs> and send me off. <laughs> well, I'm glad it's the back of your head. Exactly. <laughs> 
So your mum and dad came to America, did they? So you the first my, my, generation American? Yes, I'm first generation American, technically, um, because my mom, so my mom's family had already come to New York through Ellis Island, and my mom was born in oh, America. Oh, wow, through Ellis Island. Right. Oh. But at four years old, when my mom was four, her family went back to their village to for a summer. And while there, her father died. And the relatives in New York said, what is a widow with four children under the age of 10 going to do in New York? I think it would be easier if you stayed in the village. Well, their village was literally on the border of Albania and Greece, but technically in Albania. So they stayed there. And I'd like to clear this up because people write in and they say, I'm Albanian heritage, but I'm not. I'm Greek, but my mother's village was an ethnic Greek village in Albania, right on the border. And I've been to visit it. So then time went on. Of course, World War II broke out and their little town was occupied by um, the Italians and They got word that it was getting scarier and rougher, and if they could leave the village, they should do it then. So they had a plan to escape and go from their village over these mountains into Greece, and they got word that there was a letter that was going to be arriving for the family, and somebody had to stay there to be able to receive the letter. Otherwise, it would arouse suspicion if no one was there to get it. So my mother stayed behind. She was 19 years old. The family went ahead of her, traveling at night. She got the letter the next day, and then she traveled by herself at night over these mountains to meet up with the family on the other side in Greece. So they finally made their way to Athens, renewed their American passports, and then came back to America. So it was an extraordinary story. And my dad's story was he was born in Greece, raised in Bulgaria. He's Bulgarian heritage. And he escaped Bulgaria, was caught a couple of times, put back, and then thrown into a um, work camp, which was horrible. And he then escaped that work camp and made his way to Turkey and from Turkey got a job on a boat. And then that boat came to America and he never went back to the boat. He stayed in My in New York. What story. Yeah. I tell you what, when you hear stories like that, I mean, it must be amazing because they're your family. But when you hear stories like we've we've really got such an easy ride. Totally. <laughs> Haven't we? Totally. How did that how I mean, that story of, you know, waiting for the le- – I mean, that's, that's a movie. It's really like <laughs> a movie. It, both, both of those stories, I know. You and should write it. I know. I, I, I'll, I'll come and see it. it. <laughs> okay, good. Thank you. Um, the, I wrote a song about my dad and his journey called The Heart He Handed Down. I wrote it with Christian Bush, who's a big oh. country writer. He's in that – he's the founder of the band Sugarland. And oh, yeah. 
I really started thinking about my dad and how maybe that kind of courage gets passed down through generations. And I really wrote it for my kids to be able to say, look, if you ever get stuck, if you're ever in a place, remember that this this person, my dad, your grandfather, had extraordinary courage and vision, and you can create any kind of life you want. Yeah. And I... I, Yeah, because I think we... I mean, I grew up in a very ordinary working class family, happy family. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I, I've got two elder sisters and, you know, my mum and dad were lovely. So it was a happy upbringing. And, you know, I was more shocked than anyone what happened to me. But you, when you hear stories like that and read things, what people went through, certainly through the two wars, you just think, how did how did people cope? I mean, it's under the 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 strength of people and what they, if they have to to survive, what they do is incredible. That's actually. right. I mean, that's an incredible story. And you and 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 your mum went across the mountains at night on her own. Yeah, yeah. And then when I went to visit the village in 1995, my mom had not been back for 46 years because she was terrified that they would keep her that because she escaped, that they would somehow be able to keep her. And I'm like, mom, they can't keep you. First of all, we can go there now. It's free. It's not yeah. communist. And yeah, yeah, yeah. we, I mean, Albania is communist, but um, we're American citizens. So I, I took her back and I <gasps> took my brother, my sister, my nieces, um, one of my children. And it was it was extraordinary for her because her house was still there. I mean, imagine leaving oh your house God. with nothing but the clothes on your back and sterling silver that they had brought with them from America. And I still have that silver, which is so sentimental to me. But um, yeah, and so she it was surreal for her because it was like, there's my house. And, you know, growing up, we'd heard all of her stories about all of her goats and all of her chickens and all of her, you know, this is where we would sleep and this is where we would bake bread and this is where, you know, we would Aww. keep the goats. And it 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 was so alive in my head, but she did an amazing job describing it because it was alive. It was Aww. accurate when I went there. To oh, see I'm it. so glad you took her back. That's oh, yeah. Amazing. She loved Absolutely it. Absolutely amazing. So when so you grew, you were born in America, in in Los Angeles. Yes, Hollywood, California. Because it's funny, I've I've lived in California a couple of times for various reasons, um, and you don't meet many people in LA who were born in LA. I know it's so strange. I'm very lucky. One of one of our dear friends, because my husband Lee, who's yes. an actor, um, worked with Dustin Hoffman. They did uh, Merchant of Venice together, and Dustin right. was born in LA. And I I always used to say to him, I I you know it's so unusual to me because I always thought Dustin was a New Yorker yeah ex- I always the way did he spoke. Too. yeah isn't that amazing but he was born in LA so yeah. it's quite unusual we're one of the rare ones I think but you're the rare one I have to thank <laughs> my parents for that because they just came out from New York because the weather was good and they chose Los Angeles because um my mom's sister had moved out here and when they were looking for a house they wanted something that was near a school, and that was their criteria. And it was in Hollywood. So thank you for that, because I <laughs> got, um, I guess we called it back then, discovered at my high school, which was Hollywood High School, 
um, to start modeling by this very famous photographer who I didn't know at the time, but you will know, Albert Watson. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yes. How old were you? 14. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. So you you didn't you hadn't planned to go into that world. No, no, not at all. I was it was literally my first day of school, and Albert had been dispatched to I guess different high schools around the city to look for girls that were not professional mm-hmm. models. That would it was for Harper's Bazaar, and it was a bathing suit issue, and it was the year um, eighteen year olds got the vote. So it was the January nineteen seventy two issue of Harper's Bazaar. Wow. And I got cast in that and it was it started everything because I You got the bug. I got the bug <laughs> and I got an agent. So that was fantastic. That's brilliant. Yeah. It was really I mean it's great. a bit like what happened to me. Tell can you just talk about that a little bit? I know oh, that well, you, you know I've, I know you've talked about it, but it would be ad nauseum, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I, again, I was a schoolgirl. You know, I was I was really shy. I was really insecure. I had an obsession with a, a model called Jean Shrimpton, yes. who was like my idol. Yes. Who was probably, when I was 14, 15, she was probably 19. And I had her all over my bedroom wall. Right. But that was it. I mean, I hadn't even thought about I was very skinny, but, you know, I was, but I ate like a horse. I was just skinny <laughs> like my dad. <laughs> And, you know, and somebody had a friend who worked on a magazine and they kind of, and I, I, I didn't wear makeup in the week because we weren't allowed to right, at school. Right, right. Um, but at weekends, like most teenage girls, we'd sit and play with makeup. And I came up with that kind of, which is now quite famous, makeup with the eyelashes. Oh, and the please. Triggers. Every little girl was copying <laughs> you. Everybody. Not little girl, all girls. <laughs> but and somebody a friend of a friend had a friend on a magazine and I went to see them and they said to me, you'll never be a model because you're too small and too thin. (laughs) And I was a bit disappointed, but I thought, oh, well, I hadn't planned to do that. So, um, and then they sent me to have my photograph taken and to have my photograph taken, I had to go and have my hair done. And the hairdresser came over and said, can I do my new haircut on you? And that was that that's what we did the haircut we had a photograph i went back to school and a journalist saw the picture in his it was a very posh hairdressing salon in the west end and she wow. was a client and she was a journalist and um and she wrote an article and twiggy was my nickname because of my skinny legs right and she wrote an article with the headline twiggy the face of 66 and on that day my life changed exactly (laughs) you know what's interesting with you you know what's interesting though like you know how people talk about nowadays having a vision board and putting the things that you want to accomplish on the vision board in some weird ways like maybe those posters of gene shrimpton were sort of your early version of a vision board you know know. who knew it's really interesting no because i was obsessed with and i you know i think like most teenage girls i was a obsessed with clothes but I used to make all my own clothes because in those days you there were shops you could go and buy your mum's clothes from yes and shops you could buy children's clothes from but there weren't teenage clothes no so I'd learned to sew because we all learned to sew yep, then so did my I. sister's sew so I, so I used to so I used to make my bell bottoms and I used to make you know my little velvet tops and and you know that that's kind of what we did in we, those days I, I mean we 
we had classes. It was called home economics. So we would learn how to sew and cook in seventh and eighth grade. So you're probably 12, 13 years old when you're learning how to do that. But my mom was an excellent seamstress because when yeah, she, that's who I learned from my mom. Yeah. My mom worked at those factories when she came from Greece to America as a teenager. And so she really learned a craft. But it was so frustrating to go shopping with her because I would say, look at that. That's so cute. I want to buy it. And she would look at it with, in her Greek accent and go, I can make this. I'm like, no, mom, I want store-bought clothes. And um, she would make everything so beautifully. She made our senior prom dresses. She made my sister and I matching clothes. She made the bedspreads. She made the curtains. She was incredible. But I know. I think that generation, and even my generation, did learn to sew. I mean, I still. I mean, I've got grandchildren now, and who I'm obsessed with. And I've been sitting all, all through, you know, lockdown when we couldn't do it. I've been sitting knitting because oh. I learned to knit. And my daughter says, "Oh, Mum, I wish I could knit." And I said, "Well, I did try and teach you, but she wasn't interested." But right. our generation all learned to knit and sew. Everybody knew how to do that. My mom crocheted as well. And oh, yeah, she could absolutely. she could copy any crochet design, like any vintage design, and she could do it and make it happen. And I think there's something just so incredible about that. You know, if you think about what women used to do sewing, and I'm talking about full time. We're talking yeah. a long time ago. But cooking, sewing, um, crocheting, knitting, washing, preparing, canning. All of that time, imagine how your mind would have been going. Do you know what I mean? And and that to have the actual time to reflect, to think, to ponder. You know, we, we are so busy nowadays. There's never a moment where we just get to ponder that I kind of think what an amazing thing to have had that time because now we have to create it for ourselves. Don't you think, because of what's happened to the world with the pandemic, that a lot of us have been given that time because we've had to lock down, we've had to isolate. And actually, I think I was reading a really interesting article the other day of, number one, how it's actually helped the planet in many, many areas because everyone's not rushing around everywhere. But it's also made a lot of people rethink how they want to live their lives and because they've they had to take the time out they had to not rush off and do this and do that and oh what's the next thing because we weren't allowed to it becomes it's quite interesting I, I loved it I experienced that myself and I thought it became it got down to essentials you know like who mm. are the essential people what is the essential work um what is the essential thing what are the essential things you need to really be happy. And, uh, yeah. And even though it was a very difficult time for people, um, I think whether it was self-imposed or imposed upon us, we were forced to think about things and think about our lives and think about how we want to live them. And, you know, yeah. And as you say, out of all the tragedy, maybe that's one of the, the good things that will come out of it, that people will, hopefully be kinder to each other right right you know I I I hope so I think I think it's made us all think 
long and hard. Right. The other thing I know we I could stay here chatting for hours and hours, but I know you've got to go. But I just wanted to ask you because my granddaughter, who's the new love of my life, who's she's it was six last week. Her name is Joni. Oh. And I we my daughter named her because my obsession when I was. 20 in my late teens early it was Joni Mitchell oh my gosh and your song of Joni I, I mean I went oh my god she's written a song about Joni it's so yes. brilliant oh I have and to I've got my and little your daughter... my little J around my neck it's... oh <laughs> and does your granddaughter spell it like Joni's spelling yeah oh yeah I she's named it. because when I was I say when I had Carly my daughter um who I named after Carly Simon funny enough who I who I met when I was doing the Broadway show in 1983. Her book was great, by the way, if you haven't read it. Carly Simon's book was great. Oh, I should get, I didn't know she'd it's done one. I good. should read that. Um, I was doing a show in New York in 83 and I, I met Carly and we did actually, she, it never got released, but I did some recording with some mates after the show and I'd met Carly and she said to me one night, what are you doing, you know, apart from the show? And I said, well, we're doing some recordings. Some, a friend of mine's written some songs. And she said, oh, I'll come down to the studio. I'll sing back up for you. I said, oh, my goodness. Did she do it? <laughs> and she did. Oh. She turned up. I thought my I thought my producer was going to have a heart attack. Why don't you put that song out? <laughs> put that out. That sounds amazing. Oh, oh I'm talking about 1980. It's a good song. I actually, would definitely but... put it out. How incredible would that be? She's. Oh, I got God. to sing with her once at a friend's I wedding, love her. and um, people. There was a band, and people just started getting up and singing with the band. And Carly apparently is very shy, and very and doesn't like to perform alone. So she's like, "Will you get up here and sing with me?" And I was like, "Yes!" Oh wow! <laughs> so I know. we did. We sang "Devoted to You," which was really, really oh. fun. But she was incredible and and such an amazing songwriter. Like if you also her songs, amazing stories. That's the way I've always heard it should be. Oh my gosh, that thing is powerful. Um, beautiful, beautiful songwriter. And sometimes I think that she doesn't get the credit that she deserves. You know, I agree. She's also got the most unique voice. So unique, you know? really incredible singer. And Joni. Um, this was a huge moment because Joni was being honored by the Jazz Foundation. And they asked me if I would come and present her with the award and to sing Joni for her. So I'm, I oh, think, Twiggy, wow. that I maybe have never been. My knees were shaking, like bumping against each other. And at the end of the song... She she did this. She blew a kiss to me, Aww. like that. Well, it's oh. such a beautiful song. Thank you so it's much. Such a, I can't wait to. I, I I only found it the other day. I've got to tell Joni. Thank you. I mean, I've got to tell Carly to play it to Joni. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. I thought, I thought, oh, we are linked. I knew we <laughs> There's were. There's something there. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh well, I'm gonna have to let you go. I know, but I could go. On talking forever and ever Same. and ever what a, uh, what a wonderful it, but... tea with you today thank you <laughs> well hopefully one day either over here or over there we can have proper tea. I would love that <laughs> not, not virtual, not virtual tea. <laughs> exactly I would love that and if you come over again to see Amy maybe 
I can snuggle I would in. I love that. Of course. <laughs> we'll come get you. And I can't wait to hear what the new project is in the autumn. Well, I have um, one that's out right now called Trilogy One, and that is the first of three EPs. The second one will is called Trilogy Two. That will be out May twenty sixth or twenty eighth. Oh, fair. oh, this is great. This, yeah, this, yeah. And then the third one will be out later uh, at the end of summer or the fall. And the idea was to do these three EPs of three songs each, because exactly. they all represented sort of a different phase of uh, myself or who I am as a songwriter. Uh -huh. And so uh, I just wanted to put them out in this more unusual way, kind of broken down into, because I think as women, we're multifaceted and we're multidimensional. And if you look at, you know, a triptych, it's a three piece, uh, three paneled piece of art. And sometimes mm -hmm. in a triptych, only two pieces are showing or only one piece. And I kind of like the idea that uh, a trilogy would show three different sides of my musical brilliant. self. Brilliant. Well, good luck with all those. That's Thank brilliant. you. You know, I, I have all... heard the first one. And the other song, I, before you go, I'll let you go in a minute, is um, Tear by Tear. Oh, oh, thank you. That is gorgeous. Thank it's you so gorgeous. much. That's I love that song myself. Song. That's a personal favorite. Uh, it's beautiful. Thank you so much. So please carry on singing. Thank you. Your, I will. For your fans. <laughs> I will, definitely. And you too. Anyway, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank, thank you, you so much. What a pleasure talking to you. And hopefully get to see you soon. Properly. Thank you. Hope so too. Okay. Take care. Bye. Love to your family. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Oh, what lovely lady she is. Amazing the thing she's done. And she, I have to say, she does have the most beautiful voice. It's, it's like velvet. It's gorgeous. And do check out Trilogy number two. It's fabulous. And all her past recordings. You're in for a treat. Anyway, stay well. Let's hope the sun's going to come out for June, please. And I'll see you soon. Bye. If this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy, please do remember to tell your friends. You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye.
You just heard a stripped media production. <laughs>